You're listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. On this episode of the EdUp Experience, please welcome our guest, Doug Liederman. Doug is editor and co-founder of Inside Higher Ed. If you work in education or higher education, chances are you've seen or read an article within the Inside Higher Ed publication. Doug speaks widely about the past, present, and future state of higher ed, and we're very excited to have him on the EdUp Experience. Now, let's get to it. So welcome back, everybody. This is Elvin Freitas. And this is Joe Salustio. And on the line, we have Doug Liederman. Doug, how are you? I'm doing great. Good to talk to you all. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for being great on. Great to have you appreciate here, Doug. It. So where, where are you located right now, Doug? I'm in Washington, D.C. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, we'd love to dive right in, and we would love to know, how did you get into the field of higher education, reporting on the field of higher education? Sure. So I um, I worked on a student newspaper in college, like a, a lot of people, um, and didn't really set out to cover higher education per se. Um, I got a job right out of school getting people coffee at the New York Times, um, <laughs> almost pretty literally. Um, and one of the two jobs there, I had two different jobs there. One was working at the sports desk uh, there, and then one was working on the city desk. And then after a couple of years, they, you know, the Times had this process where you sort of did a bunch of work and kind of auditioned as, uh, to, uh, yeah, uh, to write on the side. And I just wasn't really cut out for it at that point. I, I didn't, I didn't uh, sort of had an early failure in my career. And, and the Times basically said, we're not, we don't really see you um, uh, being Times material. It's the phrase I'll always wow. remember. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a, wake, a little bit of a wake up call. It had a lot of success in high school and college. And, and here was somebody saying, you know, we don't really see it. And so um, I wound up uh, looking for a job. I mean, I could have kept working there, but not really on the track I wanted and wound up getting a job at this place I'd never really heard of called the Chronicle Higher Education back in mid 1980s, covering college athletics. Um, and honestly, I'm, you know, I, I tend to describe myself as uh, like there's a lot of accidents, I think, or at least unexpected, you know, twists and turns. Um, mm. So I wound up doing that and then finding a way to stay, keep moving through the Chronicle for a, a 15, 17 years. And then uh, at a certain point uh, in the early 2000s, a couple of colleagues and I sort of ran out of runway at the Chronicle and, and sort of saw bunch of changes happening and, and, and tried to get the Chronicle to change how it operates some. And <clears throat> instead, we decided to, to step out and see if we could create a sort of different kind of uh, higher education publication built for the 21st century. So that's what we did with Inside Higher Ed. So uh, I just want to follow up real quick. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about what was your vision? I mean, you talk about you wanted to. Can you be more specific as to what you wanted to do to sure? Different I mean, Chronicle. Yeah. So, so listen, the Chronicle had 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 been, and and in many ways continues to be a a, a a very fine place, and it has been good for higher education in a lot of ways. Where we were in the early two thousands. Again, this is you know we just turned inside higher just turned fifteen, but so the changes that we were seeing 
in the early 2000s or almost 20 years ago now. And the internet was, was obviously becoming part of what some of what it's become. And we were definitely seeing the internet being more and more central to what, what journalists did and, and, and certainly we thought we're going to do. Um, and so, and, and the Chronicle was still very print focused. I had had a, a website and they had a good website, but it was very print focused. And uh, the Chronicle also charged people of what we thought was a lot of money for individuals. Yeah. And, and <laughs> so we that, just, yeah. We sort, yeah. So we just, we saw, we were basically trying to, we, we believed that sort of higher education, we had sort of a small D democratic view of, of what, a higher education publication ought to be and 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 so basically the 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 things that we set out to do kind of differently were to make the publication as as accessible as possible and we started and and have have largely continued making it free um which was a very uh, stark choice and but it was one that we we saw all sorts of people in higher education adjuncts and community college uh, staff and grad students and all sorts of people who were very important in higher education, but who just never felt to felt themselves to be part of the Chronicle's orbit. And so we sort of thought that there was a, those were large and frankly growing audiences in higher education. And we, so we wanted to create a publication that was sort of as much as possible for everybody. Um, So, you know, some of it was about that. There were a bunch of other things, but those were the primary the primary motivators to do, uh, you know, a lot of the core things that the Chronicle did and that we believed in and continue to believe were are important, but um, for as broad and uh, diverse and and an audience as possible. Hey Doug, this is Joe. Thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing yeah. background, and I love that. I love the whole. You know, you you're probably one of the first higher ed disruptors back in the day, and and uh, I, I appreciate that because I think um, disruption is certainly one of the things that higher ed um, sees uh, and needs to continue to see, probably. Mm-hmm. But as mm-hmm. in your role, um, you're sort of this collator of information. You probably have more information coming to you at any given time. Um, uh, more maybe than anybody else in the country with different opinions, um, institutional types, closures, mm-hmm. trends, marketing, enrollment, uh, and so on. And, you know, at the EdUp experience, of course, as an as a education and higher education-focused podcast, we're always interested in the perspective of our guests of, of what's happening out there. You know, um, you, you know, if you could, in, you know, five seconds or less. No, I'm just kidding. Right? <laughs> but you're right. seeing all sum this information. Yeah, sum it right. all up in five yeah. seconds. But well, you're seeing so, this information so, come in. So give us a, no, give no. us your once over. What's what's going on? Well, it's, it's, sure. So um, it's funny because I'm actually preparing. I'm giving a talk in Florida, uh, middle of next week. I'm doing a, I'm doing a presentation of uh, this sort of this SWOT analysis that I did a couple of years ago as the uh, forward to a book at our, uh, that Rutgers published, um, where I basically did this strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats analysis of, of the whole higher education ecosystem, which was kind of a crazy thing. And I'm giving a talk on that uh, to the Florida Virtual Campus uh, Summit next week. And and so that's probably my, my um, 
uh, vain and, and, and incomplete and imperfect attempt to try and do all that. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of, I can, I'll, I'll answer your question sort of, I'll try to answer your question in a minute, but I mean, I guess one of the things that I think is important about what we do at Insider Ed is that basically that's what we try and do every day is this is an enterprise and industry. If, if, uh, some of your listeners won't freak out and hearing it called an industry, but I very much believe that it is. Um, it's a, a different kind of industry from a you know ball bearing company or a or a or, a, or plastics or whatever uh, modern day industry uh, you might cite. But it's anyway. But but it's it's having the ground is shifting under its under its collective feet to mix metaphors um, and. You know, and people, and it's a very complex tale. That's why, you know, it, it, I know you were joking, but it, it can't be answered in five seconds or less. It's really hard to, to sort of sum up the many uh, influences that are, and forces that are sort of hitting at this, this collection of institutions, this ecosystem. Um, and that's part of why, you know, what it, it's, it's, we just hired a new reporter to just announce the hiring of a new reporter today. And I'm just picturing sort of, it's actually somebody who's worked here before, but like, it's really hard to understand what the hell is happening in this <laughs> really complex. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it takes a lot of sophistication and a lot of knowledge. And it's part of why I think the traditional media coverage of, of higher education isn't very good a lot of the time, because frankly, it's really hard and you got to really understand it. And most journalists don't have the time to spend learning it. So anyway, so that's sort of just the, the, it's a really hard thing to do. And I, I, give credit to our reporters every day and in, in how well they do it. Uh, listen, what, what is to, to sort of sum up as best I can in a, in a minute or two, this is a, an ecosystem, an industry, whatever you want to call it under, I think more strain and pressure than I've seen it under in the 30 plus years I've been covering it. And um, that doesn't mean that I'm somebody who believes that it's, you know, about to go belly up, um, or that it's really even going to lose its uh, dominant position as the as the collection of of, of institutions that uh, do much, if not most, of the education and training that that people in the country get. Um, you know, there's all sorts of other entities that are out there wanting to, to take a slice of that. And there are lots of different entities that play a role in that from companies themselves and to, you know, boot camps and all sorts of things. But I, so, but I think, so I think you, it can both be true that there's un, greater than ever pressure and that the world's not going to end, but there is no question that there's going to be, those forces are going to, uh, some are, some number of institutions aren't going to survive because they aren't going to be able to adapt to the combination of um, uh, increasing financial pressure, uh, diminishing number of traditional age college students, um, increasing expectations and doubts about the value of uh, what individuals are getting and frankly what governments and other funders are getting. Um, and again, I think a lot of the doubts are, are, are flawed or at least are exaggerated, but they're, they're not untrue either. So anyway, that's, that's a, how's that for a, a, a quick summary? You can then dig into any parts of those that you want or <laughs> go in all sorts of different directions. 
Yeah, well, there's no questions in any of that, right? Um, uh, but, um, you know, just being uh, serious in, in asking you here, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, institutional closures are on the rise. It's sort of a topic. It's a, it's a tough topic to talk about because, you know, I don't find anybody wants to talk about it. Uh, when mm -hmm. I when I ask the questions, it's mm -hmm. it's uh, you know I don't know if it's a taboo subject or nobody wants to be on record predicting it or talking about it uh, too much, but it's mm -hmm. certainly happening. And you don't have to look back very far um, to inside higher ed, and you might find an article perhaps today, <laughs> yesterday, for example. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. Of an institution yeah. that closed. So, yep. so what is that, you know? Do you think that you know because we hear about institutional pressure and closures, um, a shrinking. Um, you know, the shrinking middle, if you will, right, because, um, uh -huh. uh, you know, uh, elite institutions probably are fine with a multi-billion dollar endowment uh -huh. and, and um, you know, so there's a sort of middle. How uh -huh. realistic, how real is it that institutions are, are, are closing? Is it sort of a one-off here and there for our audience? Is it a real problem? Yeah, so, so it's funny. Had some, uh, I'll admit to having had my own... Uh, sort of arc on this question. I, I probably, I can, I think I can remember my first argument. Uh, I don't know if it was my first, but Michael Horn, who was a, uh, is a really smart analyst of education and higher education. And I, he was affiliated uh, with, with Clay Christensen, who's has you know, famously predicted uh, uh, some number of years ago that half of all colleges would close. Um, and I remember having a, a sort of a, friendly argument with Michael probably seven, eight years ago about how I thought, you know, numbers like that were just wildly, wildly exaggerated. And, um, and Michael, who's again, very smart and, and very um, thoughtful, you know, um, has basically, so, so he and Clay wrote a, uh, who, who Clay Christensen just died a, a couple of, a few weeks ago. Um, uh, but basically wrote a piece for our website hmm, probably maybe 18 months to two years ago, basically dropping their prediction from 20, from 50% to, to 25% or lower. Um, still pretty high. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, I probably, I probably predicted a few years ago, you know, when, in that first conversation, I probably was, I was probably on the, the of the view that, you know, we'd historically seen four or five close a year and that maybe we'd see you more than that, but it wouldn't be a lot more. I now, and you know, I probably trail track pretty closely with what um, some of the, so Moody's uh, and, and some of the other bond rating agencies sort of offered their own predictions. I think it was about two years ago that Moody's came out and basically said, predicted that the number of institution institutional closures would triple and again that sounds like a lot and it is in one way if, but but so if, if the historical average of institutions closing or disappearing a year was like five or six a tripling gets you to 15 to 20 um and and that again that doesn't sound like a lot but if you think about 15 or 20 let's say 20 over 20 a year over a decade, that's 200 colleges, which is... Yeah, you, how many students again, is that, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it depends. Well, that's, it, it, there's a, definitely a disproportionate, um, more institutions proportionally than students affected. But let's say if, if, if and, and I would say, 
you know, I, I think the number of institutions that are truly invulnerable uh, is pretty small. Maybe a, a, a score, a few score, maybe a hundred or a couple hundred. But uh, you know, if you include some of the flagships that aren't aren't going anywhere, but that means let's say, and again, there are all sorts of institutions um, that you know you can you can count anywhere from three thousand to six thousand colleges, depending on on how you how you count. But let's, you know, let's choose 3,500 or 4,000, 200 over, over a decade is 5%. So it doesn't take that much to think that over a 20-year period, say, you could end up with 10% of schools closing. So suddenly that gap between my prediction and, you know, where Clay Christensen ended up between 10 and 25, I mean, that's still a big gap, but it's, it's not as big as it used to be. So, uh, you know, and, and I think the close and I, and I, the way I, I, I tend to focus less on closures per se, um, I use the inelegant phrase, uh, disappear, in, in, disappearing institutions, because basically, mm. and that includes institutions that in one way or another, you, you will not hear of again because they've been merged. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you add up the number of places that, you know, the, the number of uh, OPEID, the, the education department uh, identification number, it's like a social security number, but for colleges. Yep. Um, we're, we're about to see possibly all the institutions in Maine end up in one, one accredited, as one accredited institution. There's a proposal like that in, uh, there was a proposal like that in Alaska. There's been conversations about that among the community colleges in Connecticut. Um, so I think Connecticut's I, you know, moving forward with it as far as I well as as yeah I so 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 depending on how you define um, and again the, the one one accredited institution doesn't necessarily mean that all the campuses are going to disappear et cetera but when you think about the 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 seven or eight mergers I think now that Georgia has been through those are eight schools that didn't that used to that ten years ago existed and now don't. So if you if you have a broad enough definition of of what a you know a disappearing institution looks like, you know I think you get to a meaningful number. Um, and you you made a good point that it's it's fewer students because it's, because a lot of the schools that are vulnerable are pretty small, many of them private. But there's actually you know a not insignificant number of small and mid-sized publics. And it's a hell of a lot harder to close a public or to have a public disappear in some way than it is a private because there's a lot of political forces that tend to come out. Um, uh, but it's uh, so I and again, I think that may be a um, and I hate to say it because it's not a as you said, it's not a topic that anybody really wants to talk about in it. And, and I certainly would never want to sound like I'm rooting for it or encouraging it. but because there's a lot of pain for communities and for employees and for students and alumni when an institution uh, in one way or another no longer exists. But it may well be a, a right-sizing or a, or a rationalizing of a, of a sort of a, a set of institutions and a, and a population. Interesting. Thanks for that assessment. I appreciate it. I, I wanted to follow up uh, because it's interesting that you mentioned Michael Horn. We actually have him scheduled to be on a podcast as well. We can't wait mm -hmm. to pick his brain. 
But um, over the last 30 years, you've had access to some really inside information in terms of higher education and what's going on. And you have access to a lot of influential people within um, higher ed. I wanted to ask you, what do you think was the biggest disruptor in higher ed? And who do you think were the institutions or the folks that were able to adapt appropriately and have succeeded? Well, well, listen, I mean, one of the things that I think is um, important to say is that I think higher education's um, ability and tendency to adapt is greatly under appreciated and understated there is an enorm there's enormous it's it's really easy to sort of caricature this uh industry this ecosystem this whatever you want to call it uh as stagnant and and uh you know you'll say people say oh you go into a classroom and it looks the same way it did um you know, 150 years ago, there are elements of that that may be true. And, um, and it's certainly uh, arguable case that higher education hasn't sort of transitioned fast enough, or that at least certain institutions haven't. But that's the thing when you think about sort of, if you think about it as broadly as is, I think, wise, think about there've been whole sectors that have emerged that didn't exist before. Uh, there were, you know, there was no community college uh, system 60 years ago. Uh, there were no, there was no real for-profit higher education sector. There were no purely online institutions, or, or um, there were no competency-based education institutions. You know, so so, and then and then there's all sorts of innovation and experimentation every single day. The, the problem, to the extent there's a problem, is in the, the challenge of scaling. There is, um, and of, of sort of spreading. I mean, so we do not have, a, and, and this, you'll, you'll hear it, I think, if you, if you listen to me talk, I do not talk about the higher education system because we don't have one. A mm. system implies a set of, interconnected entities operating in conjunction with each other and and uh, and where changes over here you know by structure and and design result in another set of things happening over here that's really not how it works in higher education there is basically this constellation of hundreds thousands of sort of largely independent operating institutions um you know obviously there's some systems within it you've got big city you know city university of new york and cal state and you've got some systems that operate within that larger ecosystem but the as a whole it's not an ecosystem and the reason and the reason that's a problem it's been a historic strength going back to that SWOT analysis I was talking about. It's allowed for competition. It's enabled competition. It's stoked competition. And it's been, I think, been very good and created a lot of differentiation. What's difficult is to get movement. Uh, you know, I, I, I like to say it's hard to get systemic movement in a non-system. And, and we're at a point where there probably, there would probably be some real benefits to some, some systemic directional movement. And we see it sort of cropping up. I mean, it's been fascinating how much alignment there has been around 
uh, new approaches to uh, remediation or developmental education in the last few years with the co-requisite. That's something that has really taken hold and it's proof that you can you can have significant movement in a in a direction without a truly coordinated fully coordinated effort just because it's a good idea that people copy but that's how change tends to come about in higher education is just the spread of practice and 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 ideas through whatever means are available and unfortunately or i think unfortunately and maybe it's sufficient but it's certainly not going to be sufficient for some number of institutions that aren't going to be able to adapt fast enough so i'm sorry for that sort of rambling answer but basically i think there's a lot more experimentation and a lot more innovation than hired gets credit for um, but i think because it's a at least a quasi competitive market not everybody's going to make it because the place because you can only get you know, we're seeing examples now. I mean, so, um, Joe, you referred to, to the story we had about Concordia uh, University of Portland on our site today, which tried to get into some of the reasons why it was a, 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 one of the latest failures uh, in terms of closures of institutions. They did a lot of things seemingly right, or at least a lot of things that people say you need to do. They built up right. their graduate programs online. Problem is, um, that strategy may have worked for a while, but it's it's not working anymore, or, it's, or at least it isn't working unless you were one of the really early people on that and got really entrenched. Um, so so what works in one? That's thing. Our eras are changing faster <laughs> because yeah. the because the conditions are coming coming so hot and heavy um, uh, that like you know something that seems like a, a good strategy for uh five years can suddenly pretty suddenly stop working or stop being sufficiently a sufficient differentiator so just just to follow up real quick um you like i said you have access to just so much information who who's doing it right you said there's a lot of innovation there there's a lot going on but which is institutions which hired leaders should be uh, looking at to see what they're doing and how they're making it right if you, I, I guess the, the I, I probably to answer that question I I, I I think I just it's 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 um it depends what you're talking about it depends what realm you're talking about if you, it depends if you're talking about um uh, are you talking about sort of which places are taking student success seriously and doing a bunch of stuff re-engineering themselves to um, to uh, become much more effective at moving students through. Um, at, you know, and then you've got to look at places like Georgia State and some of the institutions in the University Innovation Alliance that are working together and sharing data and sharing practices on, with a very specific focus on improving uh, success rates. If you are, <clears throat> but, but, you know, um, if you're talking about uh, sort of really rethinking what uh, adults need in terms of an education today, uh, there's a different set of institutions. If you're thinking about um, which places are, um, so it really depends kind of what, there's lots of innovation, but as I said, it's in, it tends to, there's, it's, it's very rare that there's a place that's just like innovative, like period. And, it's innovative in everything it does 
and and God knows everything it does is successful. I mean, the handful of places that tend to get put forward as the innovative places are the places, you know, that we end up talking about way too much, probably like Arizona State. You know, there are, and, and certainly Arizona State has done a bunch of stuff, and Michael Crow, who's the president there, has done a lot of really interesting stuff. He's also had a bunch of failures and a bunch <laughs> of pivots, pivots of direction that, you know, tend not to get as much attention uh, as the as, yeah. as the successes and as the you know and so um, I don't know. I, it, one of the things that has really struck me in the years I've been covering um, higher education is how uncomfortable many people are talking about failure or even yeah. imperfect even imperfection, um, which is really odd when you think that higher education is an industry essentially built on the scientific method, which is all about attempt, failure, reset, you know, and yet that's just not how the institutions operate. It's kind of weird. Yep. Yep. All right, Doug, I, totally... I, got, I got what I think might be a doozy for you. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> when, um, uh, in starting out my career, I worked uh, in the for-profit sector mm -hmm. and, um, uh, for for about 15 years, and then you know I was lucky enough to be able to transition to to a nonprofit where I work now, a nonprofit graduate institution, and mm -hmm. um, you know it, what a great transition it has been. And it, it, but that hit one point through interviewing and talking to people, you know, before I made the transition, you know, uh, I, I just uh, had these instances of of, uh, of individuals um, at certain institutions, sort of you know, like they're smelling cow manure as they're asking me about my uh, for-profit background, right? Um, in the for-profit uh, sector itself, which was huge uh, in the early 2000s, has obviously shrunk uh, through closures, through, uh, you know, debilitating regulations to some degree, pressure from the government. What do you see as an outlook for people uh, or institutions in the for-profit sector? Is it is it a, is it a, piece of higher ed because right higher ed is not a system is it is it a part right. of of higher well, ed that's going to be able to survive in the future or what do you see there yeah so so i mean it's funny i um paul fain who's one of my great colleagues and i co-wrote a chapter for a book that uh was published out of stanford university a few years and we did a, a few years ago and we did a, a, ch a chapter for this book it was I think the title that I've got here something was something like the new ecosystem of higher education or something like that. And it was uh, Mitchell Stevens out at Stanford was one of the editors of it. And basically we were asked to sort of assess the for-profit sector. And this was in probably early, probably late 2000. So the, the sort of regulation of the uh, sector that was sort of, was just hadn't really happened yet. It was maybe just cranking up. And we, the title of the chapter was something like rinse cycle repeat. And basically what we portrayed was this, this cycle where, uh, and, and I, we, we found three or four examples of it sort of over, over time. And, and we were clearly, uh, uh, we were on the cusp of the, of the latest one of, significant growth uh, fueled by in most cases some good some good ideas and some things that that the sector did differently and that was sort of responding to quote customer demand which is not a way a lot of people in higher ed like to talk right. um, and then and then 
almost inevitably, sort of, you know, hyper growth, uh, and some of it was fueled by by bad motives and bad uh, incentives, and and there was abuse, and then there was intensified regulation, and then there was shrinkage, and at each and that's the sort of cycle, and each at each one of those cycles, the sector, the that that cycle of of cleansing uh, shrinks it. And what also happens at the same time, we at least the way we portrayed it, and was that the the the, the for-profit ecosystem it's a, itself moved a little closer to the rest of higher education. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so you know, it's sort of like a uh, I'm not a science guy, but so like there's this cycle happening over. Uh, I'm doing it with my hand, which you obviously can't see. But you know, there's this cycle where that where uh, where that where that set of institutions is changing. It's be is is something's happening within that, and then that whole thing is moving a little bit along the continuum, such that the dis the distinctions between that sector and the rest of higher education shrink. And I think that's now a couple of years ago, Paul and I were thinking, uh oh, we may have blown it because it was really looking like the sector might disappear entirely right. at the end of the, you know, near the end of the Obama administration. Uh, I don't know what exactly what would have happened if Hillary Clinton had won a few years, had won a few years ago. Um, but if the same, some of the same forces that had, um, had had sort of gone after the for profits in the Obama administration had had another few years to work in a in a democratic majority in the Senate, who knows but it didn't, and the sector has so i I believe this there is a place for the sector. I believe there's a place for the sector when it's behaving well, and I do think that the i think that the uh there will i do not believe we will see a return to sort of the old days of where for-profit institutions are funded uh, on Wall Street. And, and now what we are seeing, and this gets to the question of sort of that convergence, we're seeing a lot of the same questions being raised about the role of, of some of the technology providers. And, right. and we're seeing questioning of sort of the for-profit motive in traditional higher education through partnerships with companies, et cetera. So, you know, listen, this is a, uh, this is a significant, uh, if, if anybody who's uncomfortable with higher education institutions, traditional institutions being described as a, as an industry, that's fine. You can't deny that there's a big industry around higher education and that, and, and because there's a, uh, you know, millions and millions of students and thousands and thousands and actually a few million employees, there's a lot of entities that want a piece of it. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of money flowing around and that's going to draw different kinds of behavior and some of it's going to be good. Some of it's going to be bad. So anyway, I think the for-profit institutions, there's a place for them. They, they do certain things. They, they, they are interested in certain kinds of education that some other, that a lot of traditional institutions aren't and certain kinds of students. And they've, they've been an innovative at times. They just, yeah. uh, they, they've had trouble curbing their own uh, motives and incentives at times. Well, and interestingly, and this, I don't know if this is a question as much as an observation that a lot of the contacts I have in for profit that 
um, that I still have trends and, and people that are doing things the right way, you know, as we have private institutions that are having enrollment decline and trying to turn things around before closure, uh, have reached out to some of those contacts within the for-profit sector to say, hey, you know, we, we need people that understand how to increase enrollment. We want to do it mm -hmm. the right way, but we need that knowledge. And so I, you know, I'm seeing just through the contacts I have a convergence, as you say, of, you know, maybe what would be considered, a, 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 you know, an enrollment marketing um, a business intelligence mode going into some nonprofits that are struggling. And so they're, they're, they're merging the best parts of both, you know, types mm -hmm. of institutions, which is interesting, I think. Yeah. So, Alvin. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks. So, uh, Doug, uh, I always like to ask folks uh, these last two questions. So, mm -hmm. um, what would you like to be remembered for? Number one, you can answer uh, any order you like. And what do you see is the future of education? What does the future of education look like to you? Um, let, me, let me deal with the latter one first, because the, uh, the first one is, uh, I don't know. That's, uh, uh, <laughs> That's not a fun not a question big, to answer. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think the, what seems obvious to me is um, the way we've gone about viewing education as something that you do and then you're sort of done with it and you do it in a, in a kind of a, in extended bursts. Um, and then, you know, it lasts, um, you know, seems clearly not uh, built for the future um, to me. And I don't think that means the degree disappears, the four-year degree. I don't think that means residential campuses disappear. I think there will continue to be people for whom, uh, I mean, that's the thing, education, um, Education defined and as broadly as I think you mean it, and as I think we should be thinking about it, isn't just call isn't just quote you know a four year college, but even if to the extent you're talking just about that, that has a lot of purposes, and there are going to continue to be some number of us parents who continue to want to subcontract out some of our uh, ch child rearing or, or young adult rearing to uh, <laughs> we want that happening out of the house. So there will continue to be some number of 18 year olds who are, who are sent off to campuses to uh, learn how to, but that's, but that's not really, again, I, I'm, I'm trying to use the broader definition of what, of education as I think you mean it. And I, what mm -hmm. I think it is going to be is a pretty perpetual relationship between an individual and some you know, some combination of, of, of providers uh, who are, who are providing some kind of continuous and continued over a course of a lifetime learning. Um, some of it's related to, uh, to, to professional growth. Some of it's related to intellectual growth. Some of it's related to, um, you know, to, uh, to just curiosity and, and, uh, or, and so I think, and, and I think who does that? I think the mix of institutions that are involved in that is going to continue to expand and diversify. And I think the interactions between us, all us learners and 
all the potential providers of education are going to be much more fluid and and in general shorter term. So I I believe there will be fewer people who go to college for four years yeah. at a at a time. And I don't think that means we're going to end up with fewer because I and I'm not a big believer necessarily in complete sort of DIY education because I do think that yeah. somebody ultimately has to be responsible and and I think some number of learners are are savvy enough and and knowledgeable enough about what they want to be able to do it themselves but most of us need guidance and you know that's why I think you see all this talk about guided pathways I think there's a thirst for more, um, I don't know, more bumpers in the bowling alley and more, more <laughs> people right. pointing us in certain directions and maybe limiting choices a little bit. So I, I just think that we're going to see sort of a decades long, especially if, you know, part of me says, God forbid about this, but especially if we're living to 120 and working for 70 years or something like you know, like is yeah. seems possible to me. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I think it's a much more fluid uh, process uh, where people flow. Um, in terms of what about want to be remembered for, um, I, I well, I'm going to assume you're talking about uh, professionally. Uh, I mean, personally, obviously, want to be remembered for. Uh, being a good parent and a good person. Um, professionally, I think I want to be remembered for um, uh, tr- tr- sort of telling the truth and helping people make sense of the world they operate in. That's kind of what I think journalism is about these days and what the job that most of us have is trying to help others navigate the world around them. I like that. Gotcha. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Zaga. We really appreciate your time. Great. Pleasure. Pleasure Doug, thank you so much. You. All right. Yeah. Have a great weekend, guys. Thanks again. Take you care. Too. Thank you. Bye-bye. So there you have it. Joe, what do you think about the conversation with Doug Liederman? You know, Alvin, Doug is uh, really an incredible resource. I mean, you think about the amount. We really started off by talking about how much information he has coming to him at any given time, yeah, with the reporters that true. he has on staff, the writers that he has. I mean, so the information that he has on hand is, is pretty incredible and, and, you know, really distributes it to the rest of us. Um, and, you know, but one of the things I thought about, um, you know, listening to, to Doug and what he was saying that stuck out to me is when he talked about higher ed not being a system you know a system implies that you have connected parts all working together and although there are some universities with with um you know multiple campuses within a system higher ed itself with hundreds um if not thousands of separately run universities uh businesses all making their own decisions outside of each other you know, uh, really, it's not a system. And, and, you know, that's an interesting thing to think about is that everybody's sort of making their own decisions and what's best for them uh, at any given time. Yeah, I, I agree. And I will also add that I think, you're right, it's interesting, the amount of access he has to higher education leaders. Um, I thought it was interesting that he mentioned to uh, Arizona State and Georgia State universities that he feels are kind of doing things uh, the right way. 
Um, so definitely folks should uh, obviously uh, pay attention and, and follow those. I know I did. I started following yeah. them right away and started connecting with folks who work at those institutions. So that was a big takeaway for me. And I also thought that, um, you know, when people were prognosticating that the closures were going to happen, that he's basically saying it's happening a lot faster than what uh, we had thought. So yeah. I think that's a huge wake-up call for folks in higher ed. Um, but overall, it was a very, very interesting conversation. Well, and you know, Elvin, I, that Doug's really a, a big guest for our show on the EdUp experience. I mean, you know, I, I don't know of, and maybe you do, but I don't, of any person that works in higher ed that isn't reading inside higher ed, influenced by some yeah. article written in higher <laughs> yeah. ed. You know, it's our it's yeah. a go to resource for us, and so this is this yeah. is really someone that knows what's happening, uh, and and really the insight that he brought was pretty incredible. And and you know, one of the uh, other things that I thought was interesting that he said is um, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but you know, higher ed uh, people would be surprised if he said higher ed was an industry, and and yeah. I thought to myself, well, that's interesting, and we are you know, higher ed is an industry. There's businesses, there's consumers, there's sales that, you know, and maybe people don't like to use the vernacular that comes from uh, from sales and retail and so on when, when you talk about education. But I mean, you know, uh, you wonder who's out there that, that looks at, you know, the transaction of higher education and doesn't think that we're an industry producing millions, if not billions of dollars of transactions to students. It's an interesting take on, uh, you know, what he said. It was really sort of it was put in there really lightly, but uh, I thought that was a pretty significant thing that he said. Yeah, and, and then I piggyback, I agree with you to have him. And again, it was amazing. I just got him on LinkedIn. We connected. I asked him if he wanted to be on the show. He said yes. And I mean, this guy is such an influence in, in the field um, and the access that he has, the information he has, the history. You know, he worked yeah. for the Chronicle as well. So it's phenomenal to have him as a guest. And, and so we're, we're lucky to have him. And thanks again, Doug, for being a guest. We really appreciate that. So we got some more great guests coming up. Very exciting. Oh, yeah. um, so uh, stay tuned for that. And um, I guess that wraps it up for now. What do you think? I think we're good. And, uh, yep, stay tuned. Uh, great guests coming up. Like Elvin said, it's going to be pretty, pretty outstanding. Okay, got it. Until next time. Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit edupexperience.com. That's E-D-U-P, experience, all one word, dot com. And please feel free to rate, review, subscribe, and share this podcast. We really, really appreciate your support. You've been listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Joe Solustio and Elvin Freitas.